Miriam Jones there singing uh, one of the tracks from Matt Stills' album Tumbling Skies and we'll be hearing a little bit more from that album later in the podcast. Apologies for my husky voice during some of this podcast. You'll notice uh, we've recorded different parts of it at different times, what I like to call before cold and after cold. Um, So we're just about to head into a before cold section. This week we have testimonies from three people with very different experiences uh, of how God has worked and is working in their lives. We begin with an extract from Paul and Becky Harcourt's talk at the Jake Conference this summer. Paul is the leader of New Wine in England and Becky is his wife. And uh, Paul spoke about how the five solids of the Reformation need to be applied to us as individuals as well as the church as a whole. In this extract, he's just talking about his own experience of uh, Reformation of the mind. And he introduces Becky, who shares an extraordinary testimony of how God has worked to reform and renew her heart after a great tragedy during her childhood. We are called to believe God for things that without him are impossible and with him should be perhaps far more an expectation and a possibility than we realise. For me, a lot of that revolved around um, reshaping my worldview to include a genuine relationship with the living God and an expectation that he's involved in every part of my life. Um, The great breakthroughs for me came when I was um, a Cambridge mathematician. Now, that was that's a pretty kind of hardcore, logical, rational, scientific worldview. And I remember um, the first Bible passage, or one of the first Bible passages I ever memorized was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which I'm sure you all know. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And it suddenly occurred to me that the opposite of trusting in the Lord with all of your heart is to lean on your own understanding. And of course, with my worldview, that was exactly what I had been brought up to do. I I would have been brought up to have a very high expectation in my understanding, my ability to think things out, to understand them, to comprehend them rationally, to to approach the whole world as if it's something that, if we just thought hard enough, we could decipher. And of course, God is greater than that, and his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And for me, stepping beyond the rational into an expectation where God is far more than I realise was part of my, my journey. So mine really was about the reformation of the head, but Becky's journey has been much more about the reformation of the heart. So I thought we'd ask her to share a little bit of that testimony now. Hello again. Um, yeah, I just wanted to take the opportunity, as I know you're all at the beginning stages of ministry, to just think about um, how important it is to do this personal spiritual reformation for yourselves, especially in ministry. Um, I always think of it of um, we can go through ministry through, or we can go through life like we have a stone in our shoe and you know how it hurts when you have a stone in your shoe, even the littlest thing. It, it, it's painful when you walk and you don't like it and it's annoying and it gets in the way. 
Um, and I think that sometimes the things that happen in our life to us through life, they just happen to all of us. Things happen that it's like a stone in our shoe and it's annoying and it hurts. However, we can choose to, um, we can choose to think, it's not that bad, I'll just live with it. Um, I'll just carry on with it. And often I think, and I've seen, I did this in my own life, and I've seen this in many other people who've been in ministry's lives, that they've just decided to live with the things that are uncomfortable for them or the damage they've picked up in life, and it's like walking with a stone in your shoe. And I think people can do it because they think, well, um, I'll get used to it. It won't bother me after a while. Time will fix it, but often, well, it doesn't with these things. We can think it's normal to have a stone in our shoe. Well, everyone has one, so this is mine. So I just have to live with it. Um, we can think that actually it doesn't really matter if I'm uncomfortable with this stone in my shoe because I'm not really worth having um, shoes that don't have stones in them. I might as well just have a stone in my shoe. It's all I'm, all, all I'm worth. Um, we can think life is too hectic and busy. I don't have time to stop to take this stone out of my shoe. I'm too important, I've got things to do. People rely on me, I haven't got time to stop to pick, take the stone out of my shoe. Um, and we can also think, no one's actually gonna notice if I have a limp because I've got a stone in my shoe, I'll just carry on, I can um, perform really well and I can distract people from the fact that I have a limp because I have a stone in my shoe. But actually what I've learned and what I think would have benefited a lot of people as well, and it's what I feel is sort of my life message that God's given me, is to tell people, um, Stop and take the stone out of your shoe. Um, yes, as, as Christians, as followers of the Lord, we all have our weaknesses. We know that, and it's when we're weak, we're strong in him. However, that's not about the wounds we carry. When we've been wounded by life, God really wants us to come to him for healing, to not just to think it doesn't matter, or I just have to carry on, or God's not actually that interested in my wounds. He's interested in what I can do for him because um, I lived a lot of my life that way, and I see other people doing it. Actually, God really cares where we've been wounded, because that's not his intention for us or for his people. So he wants us as his ministers, as those who lead people, to take the time to allow him to touch these things in us, to bring his healing. And I often say that if we hide things or we just push them down because we think they're not important, we're not allowing the Lord to touch them and redeem them. Um, but when we take the time to do that with him, then he will turn the things that have been difficult in our lives. He turns our tests into our testimonies. He turns our mess into a message of hope for other people. So I think that's really important, especially for people in ministry to know, because I've seen if you want to go far with the Lord, you need to go deep in yourself. And the deeper you're willing to allow the Lord to go in you, then the further you can go with him in ministry. And so I just want to tell you about this big stone I had in my shoe. And this is why I speak about this with so much passion. Um, for me, I told you I grew up in America. I grew up in a Christian family. I'm very grateful for that. And I grew up knowing the Bible. But my parents had three children die. So I had a brother who died before I was born. Um, he had epilepsy. He had a seizure. He died in the night. My mother found him in the morning. He'd suffocated in a blanket. So she found him um, when she was 20 years old. Um, and my parents had been married a couple of years. Then um, I have an older sister as well who has survived. And then I came along, and then I had another sister who was born when I was two. 
Her name was Rachel and she got meningitis at the age of six months. She survived that but was severely brain damaged. And so my memories from the age of two to five are of having a little sister who just couldn't do anything for herself. She could only swallow. Everything else had to be done for her and she could just lie on the sofa. I was a child so I didn't really understand all my parents were dealing with. Um, but now I know that they often had um, to rush her into hospital because her heart would stop and lots of things like that. Lots of stress for them. Um, but her body finally gave up at the age of three, and she died. So that's two um, children my parents had lost. And then they had another daughter who was born when I was seven years old, and her name was Beth, and she also had um, epilepsy and um, was on severe medication, quite strong medication. And so again, I was a child, and I wasn't really that aware of everything, but I knew that my parents were very stressed about this because she... Um, the medication would affect her in different ways, and I knew she'd have seizures. It was quite stressful. But they got the medication sorted, and it was pretty much all under control. And then by the time I was 13, I was left to look after her. And one night, this is quite common. My parents would often go out for an hour or two. And this particular night, they had gone out to visit um, a new couple who'd come to our church. In America, even adults have Sunday school. And my parents were Sunday school teachers. And um, this new couple had come to visit them, so they'd gone to visit them to say welcome and that sort of thing. So they'd left me in charge for about an hour, hour and a half or so. And in that time my sister was having a bath and um, I was playing the piano. She was five by this time, I was 13. And as I was doing that she called to me and said, Becky, I, I want to come out now. And I said, okay, I'll be there in a minute. I just want to finish what I'm doing. I didn't want to get her out yet, I was in the middle of my song. But by the time I had finished and gone to get her, she'd had a seizure. So when I opened the door, I'd found her floating in the bathtub. So I pulled her out. I had to call emergency services. I was in a complete and utter panic, as you can imagine. I didn't know what to do. I got her dressed. She was unconscious. Um, and then the ambulance came, took her to hospital. Um, my parents came home in the meantime, like, ah, oh, what's happened? Um, so she was put on a ventilator, but she died three days later. So as you can imagine, this was a very traumatic experience for me as a 13-year-old. And for my parents, this was their third child they'd lost. So it was really, really painful for them. Now, hundreds of years ago, that wouldn't be unusual in a family. But in these days, it's very unusual. So we all had our faith in God. I'm so grateful for that. I dread to think um, how I would have coped if I hadn't had God. So that was my real um, strength through it. But how I dealt with that was by pretending it didn't happen. So I just lived in complete denial that this had happened. Because my parents, um, I don't know, were in so much grief, we never really talked about what had happened. We just went through the motions of the funeral. My parents never really asked me what happened that night. I don't know if they didn't want me to feel bad. I think they felt terribly guilty themselves because people would say, well, where were you when this happened? So they felt terrible. They were in a lot of grief. I felt horribly guilty because if I'd just gone when she called, it wouldn't have happened. So we're dealing with all these difficult emotions, but we weren't actually dealing with them. We just pushed them down and got on with life. I went back to school, pretended it didn't happen. You know, I tried to ignore, ignore it. But of course, you can't actually do that for long. It will affect you, these things that happen in our life. Now, that's quite a dramatic story, I know. Um, it's taken me many years to be able to get up in front and to be able to tell my story. I was so ashamed. I couldn't tell anyone for so many years. 
But however, what I know is that through all my teenage years and to the point where I am now, where I'm 49, God has always been wanting to bring me his healing. He didn't want me to live with this great damage, this huge stone in my shoe that I was walking with pretending wasn't there because it was easier to ignore it um, and to just live with it than to actually deal with it. And that's what I just want to say is that when um, we all have things that happen to us and we will just, sometimes it's just easier to pretend it hasn't happened or to think it doesn't matter or think God's more interested in what I can do than who I am and the things I carry, actually God's always wanting to bring us his healing. He's always wanting to restore us. So, and always wanting to bring us freedom. Again, for us personally, first and foremost. So I'm so grateful that um, I came to England because it was then that someone offered to pray for me because I had a pain in my neck. I had had whiplash. And he offered to pray for, the, for my neck. And I was like, okay, I've never had that happen before, but I'm in another country, so I'll try something different. I thought, and I didn't want to be rude, so I just went along with it. However, it's when he prayed for me and asked the Holy Spirit to come, my neck got really hot. But also, for the first time in seven years, I allowed what had happened to surface in my mind. Many times when praying or having um, Bible readings or in the night, I would think of what happened and I'd immediately push it back down. This was the first time, because the presence of the Lord was there, I felt so peaceful and I allowed it to surface and I started to cry. And I told my story to this guy for the first time. But I know that all through the years, God was really wanting me to deal with things with him so he could bring me his healing. He doesn't want us living with the wounds that we pick up in the world. Um, he wants us to bring, bring them to him so he can heal them. There's more to the story of Becky's testimony and to the rest of that whole talk, which I commend to you. It's on the Church Society website uh, to listen to the whole thing. We're going to move on now to an interview with Tanya Marlowe. I've known Tanya for oh, 15 years or so now. Uh, when I first met her, she was working for UCCF in Oxford uh, and we went to the same church together. Her life in those uh, intervening years has been changed quite dramatically uh, by chronic illness. Tanya's just written her second book. It's called Those Who Wait, Finding God in Disappointment, Doubt and Delay. And I wanted to begin by asking her what her own experiences of disappointment, doubt and delay have been. Yeah, well, I my story is that I was kind of living the uh, the Christian dream, I guess. So um, I'd always felt called to ministry, and I was a Christian minister working in a church alongside my husband, who was ordained. And uh, I was a lecturer in biblical theology, and we were working together on that. Um, but chronic illness crept up on me. So right. when I was in uh, sixth form, I had uh, glandular fever. And whereas I would just get a sore throat for a couple of weeks, it really affected me. And from then, my health just wasn't the same. Uh, I kind of got increasingly tired uh, and needing to sleep more, getting viruses, not recovering from them, those kind of things. And eventually that had a name. After 10 years, I got a diagnosis of ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis. So you'd had that for that whole period of time? Yeah, and I just didn't know it. So it was gradually getting worse because I just thought, hey, I'm a weakling. Yeah, you just kept going. Because <laughs> you were working full time. Certainly when I knew you, you were working full time yeah. and doing, you know, like you say, you were being a 
lecturer and also working alongside John in the church and all this kind of stuff. And yet you always knew there was something wrong mm -hmm. and then it wasn't yeah. diagnosed until much later. Wow. And then, yeah, in 2000, there's kind of two points where uh, there were kind of dramatic changes. Okay. Um, one was in 2007. I went walking in the Lake District and um, walked up a relatively small mountain because I was trying to kind of cut back and relax. Yeah. Um, and the next day I couldn't stand. I couldn't hold my head up. Wow. Um, and after that point, Basically, there was a limit on how far my legs would go before they collapsed. Right. Um, so this is when I thought, okay, this is pretty serious. That, I had no yeah. idea that ME could just zap the energy in your legs like that and just suddenly have no power in my muscles. So that's not normal tiredness, is it? That's not just, oh, I've done a bit too much and, you know. No, it's not. And it's not even sleepiness. No. It's, I, you know, I have no power. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so then when I got pregnant, I was, I had discovered that every time I kind of exceeded my limitations, my physical limitations, I'd get worse. Every time I rested, I'd get a little bit better. So I was at this point not able to walk very far, only a mm. few hundred meters, needing to use a wheelchair for longer distances. And yeah. I was like, what is labor going to do to me? Yeah. Terrifying. Uh, yeah, and I had no, well, I mean, I had no idea because some people it's okay. Some you hear some really stories, don't you, that um, I've certainly heard stories of people who get pregnant and suddenly their ME improves massively. And, yeah. And, and do I don't Sorry, know whether that really is a thing or not, but it, it, you know, it just must be very uncertain, I guess. Yeah, the way my doctor expressed it was it's like a pregnancy reshuffles the immune system. Mm. So you might get a better hand, um, or in my or, case, or not. not so much. So yeah. So tell us what life has been like since since you had um, since you had your baby. Yeah. So um, immediately afterwards, I woke up with a new baby and a new disability. I couldn't get out of bed. Wow. Unaccompanied. I had to. I had to hold on to the walls. I couldn't hold my baby. I couldn't change his nappy. Um, I was pretty much as helpless as he was. Uh, I was struggling to talk. I was struggling to understand people. Um, I had very limited concentration. Uh, people talking more than 30 minutes, it would sound like they were talking in French. I could only catch every other word. Yeah. And so for the last seven years, although I've been improving, I've been housebound. Okay. And only able to leave the house kind of once a fortnight in a wheelchair for a couple of hours. Yeah. And then I have to kind of rest after that to build up again. And I'm in bed 21 hours a day. Gosh. Um, and I have to ration everything, even just talking to people. Like yeah. this thing now, that is pretty much my main activity for the day. Right. Um, right. So, um, I mean, obviously, that's, I mean, it just sounds awful. And there's been, I guess, a lot of disappointment about what your life might have been like. Um, a lot of maybe uh waiting you talked about improving a little bit but you know maybe waiting and hoping for that improvement to be more maybe um could you say something about your relationship with god through all of that yeah i mean uh the the trouble with me is that it comes in relapses yeah. and little bits of improvement and then suddenly relapse. So it feels kind of like you're edging up a mountain really slowly and then suddenly you slip and fall yeah. and you don't know how long you're falling to. 
Um, so in those times, generally in the winter, when I would get a virus, and mm. then that would be it. I'd be out for like a month, four months, uh, incredibly ill. And just in that terror of going, I don't know what's going to happen to me, and knowing that there are so many people who uh, just never recover from yeah. me and get worse and worse and then die. Yeah. Um, it was just terrifying. I think the un- and it's the uncertainty. And we were talking about waiting. Yeah. It's the uncertainty that yeah. kills us, you know, because if you're kind of saying you're going to wait now for four hours and you go, fine, I'm going to bring a book, I'll do some entertainment, I'll do my own thing, we'll meet back in four hours. But if you say you're going to wait now and you don't know how long, yeah. that's enough to drive you crazy. Or even if the thing you're waiting for might never happen. I mean, that, yes. you know, it's <laughs> kind of, yeah, what, what, how do you deal with that? Um, and I think my answer was not very well. I mean, people often talk about kind of waiting on the Lord, and I've noticed a lot of books on waiting and kind of like, here's what you should do while you wait. Yeah. But I think they almost envisage that, okay, you've got a waiting period. Yeah. You know, it's four hours, bring a book, pray. Um, whereas I'm talking about the situations where we just don't know. Yeah. And we don't. And that the emotional experience of that is it takes its toll. Yeah. And it's hugely draining. I think we don't talk about that often enough as Christians. Right. And so I guess one question I had, obviously, your experiences have been quite extreme in in many ways. You know, most of us are not housebound and in bed for 21 hours a day and living Mm -hmm. with that kind of illness. So this idea of, of focusing on waiting, is that something... Obviously, it's something that's been more obvious to you since your illness has has really taken hold. But is that something you think is only for people going through those kind of deep kind of sufferings, whatever they are, or something that, that is a more general part of the Christian life? Yeah, well, this is what I discovered through writing this book and looking again at the Bible characters and the Bible experience if you like of waiting yeah that everyone is waiting so whether it's like whether we're kind of waiting for something trivial like an appointment or an interview or those kind of things or a spouse or better health or a better job or a better life yeah you know somewhere to uh, those kind of nebulous longings that we have we're kind of waiting to feel like we belong yeah waiting to find a church that feels like how we imagine church should be. We're waiting to uh, escape those voices in our heads that, mm. that have negative things. You know, there's something that we're longing I think, for. I think something that, that I often experience, and I, I think probably quite a lot of people do, is that sense of if I can just get through whatever it is, if I can just get through Christmas, or if I can just get through this particular month where my diary is really busy, then I will you know yeah. be else everything and and actually you never really get through because there's always more of life at the end of it but <laughs> <laughs> it you know that sort of you know then I will be able to do the things that I I think I should be doing or or whatever yeah that's so true isn't it kind of when we live we put our dreams on hold yeah and we put our life on hold and, and and there is that sense in which we we live like that and so then I started thinking spiritually and and relating that to how uh, we wait for Christ. Yeah. 
So if you think of Advent, Advent is my favourite liturgical season. Yes, me too. Because it's like this really kind of miserable one. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's really exciting. It's saying this isn't it. But, you know, there is, you know, we are still looking forward um, to Christ's return and and all the, the wonders that that will bring. Yeah, so it took me ages to realise that Advent wasn't just about waiting for Christmas, but no. that traditionally, like people had used it to pause and long for Christ's return, yes. not just thinking about his second coming. And that's what I wanted to do through the book, to have that double focus yes. of all these people um, awaiting Christ's incarnation, his first mm. coming, and longing for that in the various ways. So Sarah, then Isaiah then John the Baptist and Mary as we get closer to Christ's arrival and and to reflect to use that as a reflection on how actually the experience of the Christian is one of waiting and yeah. eager anticipation and for me that felt like such a release because I'm like what if our frustrated longings are actually a piece of spiritual truth yes they're not something to be squashed down they're not something to be distracted from. What of our what of our longings and those those feelings of disappointment um, and and waiting and impatience? What if they're pointing to something more? Yeah, because what actually if this life. Us? Yeah, the, you know this life isn't supposed to fulfil all our longings. It's not supposed to be the the life where we live with everything. Um, that we should be and everything that we're you know we're supposed to be looking forward aren't we uh, always mm. to more and you know when Peter says we're aliens and strangers I think part of that is that you know we are frustrated people so there's I yeah I think you're right there's something about those sort of um, what might feel like more um, everyday longings about health or about work or about family or whatever are part of that experience of looking forward um, to the new creation, aren't they? Exactly, yeah. You've kind of summed it up really well. There we go. It's about my blurb. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I I really like about this book, as well as uh, your previous book about Ruth, is the way that you use those narrative retellings. So rather than kind of giving us a, a more traditional sort of exposition of these Bible passages, you imaginatively retell them uh, Mm -hmm. from the perspective of of the people involved. I wondered why you choose to do that rather than give us just a a sort of more traditional uh, explanation of what's going on. Um, I guess my short answer is because it's more fun. Okay, that's a good answer. (laughs) Because um, story, like we love story. And the vast majority of the Bible is story. And sometimes I kind of question the method of so much of our preaching and teaching. Mm. Because, well, I'm biased because I'm an English lit grad. Yeah. And um, I love I love reading. I love books. I love tales. And I think, why do we take story and basically turn it into maths? Mm. You know, we kind of yeah. take it. A wonderful story with nuances and we go okay well here's the one thing that you need to learn from it here's the yes. kind of distilled rule so I get I'm that like, well, my um yeah. my focus is is poetry so I did my PhD on the Song of Songs but I get so frustrated with people preachers who, who take the poem and, and sort of work out you know the the sort of propositional truths that are in it and then that's yeah. what they preach and I just think well if if the writer wanted us to be thinking about these propositional truths, he, why would he have written a poem? 
Yeah. And, you know, and it's the same with stories, isn't it? Actually, the, the Bible is full of amazing literature in both narrative and poetic form and other forms too. And, and we often, yeah, strip it of all the goodness. Yeah, and I think what we do, what I wanted to do was have that experience of living into the Bible mm. and letting it kind of, as we immerse ourselves into it, it kind of transforms us in a deeper way than when we're just looking on top of it, as it were, yeah. with a bird's eye view. Mm. And so that's what I wanted to do with retelling the lives of, of these people, because as we identify with them and realise, oh my goodness, these people are actually human. You know, they were kind of like distant saints or, or sinners, yeah. but they were real like us. They yeah. had good moments, they had bad moments. Yeah, and they were faithful and unfaithful. Gone. Yeah. Sorry, what was that? They were faithful and unfaithful. Yeah, exactly, kind of they were like us yeah exactly <laughs> and just seeing how god meets them in that uh was so powerful to see how god is relational i think if you take out the story and and turn it into exegesis then we often miss those nuances of the mm. kindness of god in meeting people in the place where they were and and sensitively to the person that they were yeah yeah I agree I really liked that you included um at the end of the book that section on sort of some of the choices that you'd had to make obviously in the retelling so you know sometimes mm. you have to include things which you know the bible doesn't uh include that kind of detail or you know kind of work your way into it so I like that that was there as well um to kind of help us see you know what what you'd chosen to to do and why um but I, I really like um, having those stories. And also um, the way that, you know, the book is designed to help people respond. You talk about sort of living in to the Bible, but also all the, the sort of questions and the prayers and the, the exercises and, and all of those kind of things. And I just wondered, you've put all of that together, obviously, very thoughtfully and carefully. What, what are you hoping that readers will be able to gain um, from the book or or maybe also what what has it done for you as you've thought about those things and done those exercises um I think there's a verse in James that I'm gonna probably misquote but it's kind <laughs> of like don't just look at the mm. don't just look at the word you know do what it says and I think sometimes we kind of we can turn looking at the bible into a spiritual exercise rather than saying, how can I involve the whole of myself in this? How can I bring to God the whole of myself? And one of my passions is uniting the spiritual with the emotional. Yep. Um, and being honest about that and vice versa. Yeah. Inviting our emotions into the spiritual realm and seeing how they point towards spirituality uh, rather than away from it. Um, so that was my idea with that um and to ask probing questions um about our lives and our longings and so much that we can keep hidden and bring those into the open great um, that's what i wanted it to be like a really honest exploration and so um all these things that we kind of don't often talk about as christians like doubt and disappointment and feeling like an outsider and longing to find our purpose, just bringing those questions out and giving them mm. a real exploration. Mm. And then doing something practical and creative in response, I think really helps in connecting with God. So I just wanted to give people as many ways to connect with God as possible, 
because we all kind of connect with God uh, differently. So one of the re- the ways that I connect with God is through music. So you might have noticed there's like musical yes, suggestions I love that. throughout. Yeah, I love that. I'm not really a music person. I'm much more of a sort of visual uh, person. But I really like uh, that you included all of those different kind of things. And just that um, focus on, on bringing our emotions in, which is something that I think uh, as evangelicals, we're not always very good at or some of us are not always very good at but actually you know we are to love the Lord not just with our minds but also with our hearts and and I think Mm. um you know that's something that that is very important that that we help people find ways to do that um for those of us who for whom it's maybe not as natural as others Huge thank you to Tanya for sharing uh, what God's been doing in her life and also to Paul and Becky for their testimonies of God at work in their lives. I hope you've been encouraged as I have to hear how God can heal even the deepest wounds and work even through the longest and most painful kinds of suffering. For many of us in those times of disappointment and delay and struggle and suffering, we turn naturally to the Psalms, and particularly the Psalms of Lament. We heard earlier a little snippet from one of Matt Searles' songs based on Psalms of Lament uh, from his album Tumbling Skies. I'm pleased to be able to tell you, you can get that album for free just at the moment. Uh, Download it. I'll put the links on the website. You can download the album and then there's also a book of devotions uh, to go alongside that. Um, And I do commend that to you, particularly if you're someone uh, going through a hard time at the moment. We're going to end the podcast now with the rest of that song we began with based on uh, Psalm 13, How Long, O Lord. Sorrow in